0: I'd like you to open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 40, one of the grand chapters in Scripture because the last half of the chapter is all about who God is and his grandeur and his splendor and his majesty and his sovereignty and his might. The last few weeks we have taught about the unique things of God, the uniqueness of God. That is what Scripture says that defines God. It couldn't define anybody else. The things that are said about God cannot be said about man, cannot be said about the inventions of man. Nothing that man has ever devised, built, dreamed up, or thought of can compare to God. God is unique. It's important for us as Christians to learn those things. We must never treat Scripture as some dull theological treatise on God. Things that, you know, God did this and God that. That should never be dull just because that's the very basis of our faith, even our worship. We worship somebody we know, not know about. If you only know about him, you have pretty dull Christian life. If you just know about him, if you know him from afar off, You're familiar with routine songs and the way we do things. If you just learn that, but you don't know him, then there's not a lot of meaning to what you're doing. It's a socially good thing to do to go to church. That's what nice people do and all of that. But it's not a vibrant thing in your life. It doesn't make your life rich and full spiritually. God simply is willing to reveal himself to those who are willing to seek him. When Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, that's a relationship, and learn of me. Don't just hear stories about me because preachers are notorious for just telling stories about Jesus without ever really defining him. And as God gives us the knowledge of him, as we learn about Jesus, we begin to draw closer to him because we have to at some point say, wow, he can do that. He is that. He made it possible for that. No wonder it's easy to trust in him for those that do. I mean, what can't he do to relieve you of whatever's going on in your life? Well, he is called the great God. Did you know that Jesus is called the great God in Titus 2? Looking for the coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you begin to realize him because the Spirit of God comes to magnify him. And the more you begin to see God in his immensity, in all of his bigness, and you begin to see him as he is showing himself to you, your life begins to take a whole new turn because he becomes the focus of your life. Nothing's too hard for him. Nothing is impossible to him. Remember all the omnis we talked about? He's omnipotent. He can do anything. There's nothing too hard. He's omnipresent. He is at all times everywhere. He goes at no time, has to go anywhere to be there. He's always there because he is spirit. And he's omniscient. He knows everything. There's nothing that can be known that he doesn't know. And he allows you to approach him in that capacity. And you can gather up all the problems you've ever had and your ancestors ever had. If you could do it, you could pile them up in one pile and they would be nothing but a speck of dust to God in his ability to fix it all. See, but that's the effect it has. You can't fold your arms and know that. Or you can fold your arms, but you can't have a dull interest in God and know who he is. Because once he begins to disclose himself to you, like he said in John 14... He said, you keep my word. You that have my word, you live it and you keep it. Live like it's true. And the Father and I will begin to reveal ourselves to you. And you will begin to see God in the way that God wants to be seen. And the thing called the fear of God becomes a natural attitude in your heart of high and awesome respect and regard for God. The life is easily turned towards God because of who he is. But if we treat subjects like theology, theological terms, if we treat these terms as just heady stuff and not really interesting, you're going to miss out on the very thing that God gives you. Too many people have lazy minds. They don't apply their mind. A mind is a unique thing. Its capacity is overwhelming. But if you don't use it, if you don't apply it towards God who made it, then you can never know what God wants you to know. And life is just a drift through one problem to another in a land of woe, in a world of difficulty, and you just live hope tomorrow's better. There's no victory. There's no peace. There's no joy. There's no testimony there. But let God begin to reveal himself to you. And in the worst of circumstances, You've got a testimony of joy and worship, no matter what's going on, because God will take care of me. See, we have to learn that. Theology is not a dry thing. It's a wonderful way that God shows us who he is in a deeper dimension. In Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 12, just follow me for a little while. Speaking of God, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in a scale and the hills in a balance. Now You know what? You can look at the seas. If you've ever been on a sea, a great lake, God says he can tell you how much is there by just what little bit would be in, like in our understanding in the palm of our hand. That's how big it is to God all the waters of the world, it's like a drop to God. And all the mountains and all the land, like dust on the scale. Dust. I'm not talking about heaps. I'm talking about dust. In other words, God shows himself to us as one who looks at the realm we live in as something that is so small in light of how big he is that it's as though it's nothing. Notice, go on. Verse 13, Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or who being his counselor hath taught him? With whom took he counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles of the sea as a very little thing, And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. Not of wood in Lebanon for a burnt offering. All the nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. To whom then will you liken God, or whom will you compare to God? That's what our word unique is about. He's nobody like him, but he says, to whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold and casteth silver chains. And he that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning craftsman to prepare a graven image that will not be moved. And he worships the thing. He cuts a tree down. He takes it to a craftsman. And he carves it into an image, something that looks like maybe what a god ought to look like, like a totem pole maybe. And he puts enough silver and gold on it, and men worship the thing. They pray to it, and they honor, it, and they lay gifts and sacrifices at the foot of that piece of wood. I've been reading all the major prophets in the Bible, and the one great time, page after page, and chapter after chapter, and time after time after time after time, just on and on, God levels judgment against his people, and mainly because of idols. Worshiping something besides God, living for something besides God, seeking as a treasure something besides God. That and judgment, mistreatment of each other, being ugly to each other and unkind, Oh, his judgment was so bad. He said, even if you got together in times of difficulty and pray to me, I will not hear you. Whew, that's pretty disgusting. So he says to these people who are turning from God to these other things, who's like me? Who can measure the earth? Who can measure all that's in this earth like dust or a drop of water? And all the places in this world that you know of, they are as nothing to God. All the nations, the ones you fear, oh, there is nothing to God. The God of Israel, the God who said, I'm the one who watches over you, they rejected him. And he says, all right, answer me this. Verse 21, have you not known, have you not heard, hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their are sound like I'm prophesied. Yea, their stocks shall not take root in the earth. And he... Shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble, because God can do that. God, in His judgment, can do whatever He wants to do, but He never does anything that's not fair or right. Verse 25 To whom then will you liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Lord? The Holy One, lift up your eyes on high, and behold, he who created these things that bringeth out their hosts by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Why saith thou, O Jacob, and why speakest, O Israel? My way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. These are classic words here. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth fainteth not, neither is he weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, to them that have no might. He increaseth strength. Even the youth shall fail and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Because he's God. What a marvelous chapter. God challenging people who are seeking comfort and something in life besides God. And God says, compare me with all the things you're looking for and hoping you get in life and all the treasures of your heart. Compare that to God. Well, you know, a lot of people really don't know him. I think that's why they turn away from him. But he begins to give us little glimpses into himself. Who's like me? Who will you compare me to? Who will counsel my spirit and give understanding to me? I created the worlds with the word. And for your sakes, he said, I measured it out as dust. The whole earth is nothing more than fine dust. To God who sees all the things in it, even the leaves that fall to the ground, even every flake of snow that's different, he knows them all. He knows them all by name. He's God. No wonder then there's times like Job when God began to reveal himself to Job. He said, tell me, Job, you seem to know so much. How does the wind blow? Where did they come from? Where does it go? And the animals, the kind of animals they were, the scales and the might and the terror of animals in this land and on the sea. Come on, Job, you got so much. Tell me that. Remember, Job put his hand to his mouth and said, I have spoken that which I know not. I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eyes seeth thee, and I abhor myself in sackcloth and ashes. I need to shut my mouth because I am just beginning now to see who you really are and I don't know you. I think the knowledge of God is one of the most supreme and absolute essential things there is. Would you turn to the book of Job for just a moment? Chapter 22 and verse 21. Now I won't get finished today, but that's okay. I'm gonna talk this morning on the uniqueness of God's sovereignty. We could just call it God's unique sovereignty. That's a shorter title. God's unique sovereignty, because he is sovereign. But here's what, to get to the sovereign part, here's what he says in Job chapter 22 and verse 21. He says, Acquaint now thyself with him, and be at peace. Does your Bible say that? What will result from that? He said, thereby good shall come unto you. Now, is there anybody in this room who would not want God to send good into your life? Well, all of you want good. We've discussed the bad for 30 years, or however, however old you are. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's obvious when you're complaining there's a lack of good in your life. What was it? He said in Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley, all the other for me. He ends by saying, Surely, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me Wednesdays and Sundays. All the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's why when you walk through that valley of the shadow of death, you fear no evil. He's delivered you, as Psalmist said, from all your fears. He has become so big that everything you tremble about has become so little that you cast aside all the fleshly, "Ah," and you just say, into thy hands. He is able. I have the privilege of coming boldly to his throne at a time of need in my life that I might obtain mercy from him. Oh, whom should I fear? What should I be afraid of if God is for me? It doesn't matter who's against me because greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. And that's not just quoting Scripture. That comes from relationship. He is greater. God is bigger than the swine flu. Therefore, there's no reason to fear it. There's no reason to dread it or to expect it to happen. You know, I get it every year. No, you don't have to. You can get it if you want. If you want it, go ahead. You don't have to. And we can have this confidence because the revelation that God gives to us about himself, about his might, his power, and everything about him relieves us of these fears. He's God. Nothing is too hard for him. And everything he is, he has revealed it unto you. You're his special people. These promises in this book weren't made to the world. They don't belong to the world. They belong to you. The world cannot know them any more than they can know God. Amen. The carnal mind is enmity with God. It cannot know God because of the carnality of the mind, the fleshliness of the mind. But as the mind is being renewed, remember that Romans 12, the mind is being renewed so that you can know his will, And then life becomes an eye-opening experience. Wow, praise God. That's why you say that, praise God. And there's a smile on your face. There's a joy in your walk. And people will ask you a reason of this hope that is within you. Why are you so jovial in a time of difficulty? Because I know in whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What kind of God are we serving? He's a sovereign God. He's called the Almighty. And we're told in Job 22 and verse 21 to acquaint now thyself with him. The word really means to provide, but it means. To draw nigh to him is to be provided with something that issues secondly in peace. Acquaint yourself with him. Know and learn about him. Quit treating this book as though it's something over your head. I can't get that. No, it's not over your head. Draw nigh to God. He said, acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. Peace is the absence of mental agitation. You're not all tore up. Peace is a serene, quiet rest in God. Peace. That wonderful song we used to sing in church, peace, peace, wonderful peace, coming down from the Father above, sweep over my spirit forever I pray in fathomless billows of love. He's loved me enough that he wants me to be at peace like he is at peace. Peace. God is not restless. God is not nervous. God is not concerned about tomorrow. He's already in your tomorrows. He's already there because he knows the end from the beginning. He's God. He can do that. Nobody else can do that, but he can. You know what he said? He said, good will follow you. Goodness. Now, I want to say these three things about God's sovereignty, his unique sovereignty. First of all, what it is, how we define, as Christians, how we define the sovereignty of God. Secondly, the testimony of Scripture or the evidence of this sovereignty found in Scripture. And thirdly, the most difficult of this, which we probably won't get to today, but it's how does the sovereignty and the rule of God fit in with the will and the freedom of man to choose? It's a very good question. It's been debated for centuries. Churches have divided over it. People have fought about it, became mortal enemies over that one subject. Is God master over all of creation, or does man have a will that is equal to God so that God would never make him do what he doesn't want to do? We Christians would say, or would God so exercise his will upon a man that he can make a man willing to do what God wants him to do? god can do that you see in defining sovereignty sovereignty is the exercise of God's supremacy that is God taking all of creation and doing with it whatever pleases him and in his sovereignty he is almighty in power in heaven and earth so that nobody can defeat his counsel nobody can defeat his purpose And nobody can resist his will. If God has declared and decreed things, he said he knows the end from the beginning, if he knows how it's going to end, there's nothing a man can do to keep that from happening. We are a part of the whole plan because when God preordained the way this world would run, when he predestined all things, he predestined in that your will and your choices, and that by right choices we please God, and by wrong choices we displease God. But that's a part of the plan. But only God is able to oversee, to affect, to overpower, to influence the most stubborn of man to make him the most willing of men. God can do that because he is sovereign. He possesses original and supreme jurisdiction and power over all creation. As I've already said, nothing is too hard for him because he created all things. Spurgeon, the great preacher, said, there is no doctrine we should earnestly contend for more than the doctrine that makes God master over creation. And yet we so avoid things like this. And we do. I'm talking maybe about my own past. If I thought I was going to church 50 years ago and the preacher was going to talk about the sovereignty of God, I would have thought, oh, come on. Can you imagine? I can't today imagine why you would take something so immense and so necessary for my faith to be confident in of his sovereignty and to treat it as though it's an unnecessary, unneeded, boring thing. Yet we have convinced ourselves down through the ages that we don't need all of that, and that's not the kind of thing that we need. But God is sovereign. I said earlier that the exercise of his supremacy is his sovereignty. I remember a preacher years back in 1970. I remember clearly him saying that when Adam sinned, God had a problem. God had this problem when Adam sinned. And I, and I remember I didn't know enough to, to come out of the rain very well. And I remember thinking, how could God have a problem? How could God ever, ever have a problem if he knows the end from the beginning? If he knows how it's going to turn out. That's like having already seen the movie and know who wins. If you know your guy's going to win, you just sit there and watch him suffer and all of that, but he wins. He knows the end from the beginning. I thought, how could he have a problem? Or you hear phrases like this, well, God is trying to get men saved. Or God is trying to get your attention. I probably said that. I think now that that's not the way to say that. God isn't trying. God is not putting an effort out of trying to do anything. He's already declared what's going to be. He has. Makes you little, doesn't it? He already knows. God is trying to get men saved. God had a problem. I remember that. Or God is trying to defeat the devil. Well, the devil did this, and now God says, oh, now what am I going to do? As though he's not sovereign. See, this fellow did not see God as sovereign. You know, he was God who created a world and then put people in the world, and then he sort of, in a static way, stands back to let man decide what he wants to do. And God foresaw somehow or another how some of us would believe and some of us would come around, and he says, okay, those of you that come around, I will elect you to salvation, which is foolish. In God's sovereignty, like in Psalm 145, verse 13, he says, thy kingdom, thy reign, the realm of thy rule, thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. At no time in creation has God not been in complete and total charge of all of creation at no time. God has never been surprised, has never been uneasy. God has never been in a place where he was wringing his hands in uncertainty. He's a God of peace at all times. God knew what was going to happen. He's sovereign. Now what do I do with this? I take the definition of God as being the master of all his creation, and I realize that this one God has asked me to come to him and lay all of my problems before him, the problems found in dust. Dust. It's gone. But in all of the little bitty things that and he said, You come to me. There's nothing too difficult. For me. I know your uprising and your down setting. I know the hairs on your head. I know the steps you take. And you come to me because I'm master of all creation. There is nothing I can't do. There's nobody's mind I cannot change. There are no circumstances I cannot change. I can move heaven and earth if I have to, because I'm God. That's who you come to. And he's asking you this morning to believe in him. That's where your faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Look at the evidence in the scripture of it. Psalm 24 and verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But that's not all he said. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And they that dwell therein. Is that you? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and they that dwell therein. That's me and you. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of all of it. It's all God's, and the people in it are God's. Everything. The cattle on a thousand hills. All the gold and the silver in those hills. As we say in Kentucky, all the maters and taters that are planted in those hills. It's all God's. This is another subject, but this is why we as Christians should respect creation. Call it the environment. I'm not a wacko. There's one in my family, but I'm not her. We just simply respect the created order. We don't have to kill everything we see. We'll have to cut down every tree we see. But we treat things with respect because it's God's. The people you work for, if you have a job, the people you work for, you work for them as though that person was God. That is, you give them your very best. This is the way we live because we know him. If we don't know him, we try to get by with whatever we can. But Job 42, again, he says, I know thou canst do everything and that no thought of mine can be withheld from thee. Job 42. I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Now I do want you to turn to the Psalms. I want you to turn to Psalms 115 and verse 3. Would you do that? We're looking at the testimony of Scripture that reveals the sovereignty of God. Psalms 115 and verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. And he hath done whatever we let him do. Well, that preacher said God wanted to do this or that, but man would not let him. I remember that. I'm thinking man wouldn't let him. Who's sovereign here? How many of you know that parents are sovereign over children? Don't you give them a chance to make up their own minds? But you don't let them make up yours. And if they make the wrong idea, you say, we're not going to do that. Well, I want to. (laughs) Well, good night, Irene, because you're not going to do it. (laughs) You give them freedoms, but not to do whatever they please because your way is the one you're going to do. All right? And Psalms, again, 115, 3, our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he pleased. Or in Psalm 135 and verse 6, again, It says, Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deep places. What did he leave out? God does as he pleases wherever there is anything to be done. In the realm of the created order, the heavens, the earth, and the seas, and the earth under the seas, God does as he pleases why? Because he is God. It all belongs to him. When they were building the temple, bringing all these gifts to build the temple, and they were heaping up piles of gold and silver that were immense. He said in First Chronicles twenty nine eleven. just listen to this. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness, we sing this, and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. The house you live in, the money in your pocket, the clothes in your closet, the time on your hand, everything is God's. To live in disregard of that is to not know God. To live with that being a checkmate in your life to keep you from sin is to know God. It's that simple. If you know God, you don't offend God. If you don't know God, you do. And he said, For all that is in the heaven and the earth is thine, for thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Listen to this. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thy hand is power and might, and in thy hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. God can do that. When in 1 Corinthians 1, it says that God chose the foolish things of the world, there's no famous fancy people in this room. Well, not very many. (laughs) Who's the fancy ones? I'm not going to tell. No, God didn't pick to come to him all the fancy people that had to be treated special who need to be recognized all the time, full of egos. God chose the people the world wouldn't choose, people like you, quite ordinary, undistinguished, just people living in this world. Not famous, not movie stars, not mayors, not anything big. Just people. Look around. I mean, this is us. And yet he can take people like us and so impart into you as he wants to. He informs you what he wants to do opens your eyes to see it because relationship is a result of revelation. He reveals to you what he wants. You begin to desire it, and he begins to pour into you his very promises and his power and his might so that you walk through the world. You're the one as well. You're the one that overcomes. You're the one that has a smile on your face. You're the one that's not breaking down or concerned about your health insurance. You say, why are you so at peace and not concerned about all of these things? Because God has delivered me from all my fears. You shall know the truth. And the truth will make you, not the world, but you free. Free from everything that is not of God. Free from everything that disorients, discourages, depresses. Everything that tears down, you're made free from it. By the light of his word that God gives you. He doesn't give this word to anybody. The world isn't interested in what you're hearing. It's not even for them. It's for you. It's as though God walks into our life and he says, I want to show you who I am. I want to so reveal myself to you that you never have a problem with faith anymore that you can look and see what he has done, and you reach a conclusion. You reason, and you say, well, if he could do that, what's impossible for him? He can do anything. Paying my little bills, getting me out of my little debt. Quit being so offended when God gets on your case about those mistakes that we make. Quit feeling hurt because, well, he preached at me this way. Let it be God speaking to you to deliver you from those things that make you act like that. He's God. We're not here to be entertained. He didn't bring us here to entertain us. He brought us here to teach us. We sing the song. Did you mean to Teach me thy way, O oh Lord, so that I may rejoice that I know more than other people. If you don't live it, you don't know anything. Remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar? He had a dream. They couldn't tell him what the dream was. Daniel could. I'm talking about Nebuchadnezzar, not Belshazzar, but Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar, he came in, gave him the dream. He said, you're going to have a hard time for seven years. And Belteshazzar, I could see his look on his face. Me, the king, I'm the most powerful single figure on the face of the earth. And one day, in fulfillment of Daniel's interpretation Nebuchadnezzar began to eat grass and crawl. And he lived like a beast. And the hair, the Bible says, it grew out on his body like feathers on a bird. And his nails were like claws on a bird. And yet, his kingdom stayed intact because God said, don't remove the stump. He kept it. Nobody rejected him as king, even though, where's the king? He's out there eating grass. Don't get too close to him. <laughs> That's Nebuchadnezzar. What's he doing? He's learning. God's taking him to school. School? Yeah. How long does this school last? Seven years. Can you imagine going out there and see him in the morning, the dew like on cows and animals, and the, the dew is on his back, and but he's got this hair on him now. And he probably can't talk, just growl, he's got these big claws, and didn't say he was mean, but he lived like a beast. Now what was he in school about these words, these wonderful words? He said, he came to this conclusion. He said, "And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing." And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What are you doing? God could take the most powerful figure on the face of the earth and God could make this man look like an animal to teach the rest of us throughout creation in the world to teach us about God. He said, he does as he wants to in the kingdom of men. And he rules and he is in charge. And no man can say to him, what are you doing? Daniel five twenty one says, till he knew that the Most High ruled in the kingdom of men and that he appointeth over it whomsoever he will. That's why I don't vote for one reason. My barber one time said, Barbara was asking me about who was voting for, and I said, "Well, I, I don't. I'm not registered to vote." I said, "Well, then you ain't got nothing to say about what's going on, and you shouldn't have an opinion." I said, "I pay taxes. I wonder what the government would rather me do: register or pay taxes?" (laughs) My opinion's not worth anything. The last I looked, there's no market for opinions. They're not worth much. But Nebuchadnezzar had to learn what it was about God that makes a man just put his hand over his mouth and stand before God and go, whoa. He can do that because he rules, the Bible says, in the kingdom of men. Listen to these words in Isaiah. This is Isaiah 46, 9. He says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Here's the point God rules this created order that we live in. He's in charge of everything. No man can stop what he's doing, no man can resist his will, no man can defeat his purpose. The best designs of man cannot change anything that God has declared. You need to come to the place where your full and total submission, devotion, is to God, a kind of consecration that lets God be God in your life. And quit wondering if he can do this or wondering if he can do that. Well, he did this in the old days, he did that, but can he do it today? There's never been a time he couldn't do anything he wanted to. And yet... We hear about problems coming, and we don't worship, we don't sing, we don't rejoice. We're not full of joy because of all of this. guess the world is leaning on his heart. He can do anything. What about the Red Sea? And here comes Pharaoh with 600 of his best charioteers. I don't know how many other hundreds he had, but he loaded them all up. And we're coming after these Hebrews. They've come to the Red Sea. And they get there. I think of the reed seed, the little bitty one-inch deep water the people tell us about, which makes the charioteers about an eighth of an inch tall, a little bitty. If the sea was only about that deep, then they were only about that big. But anyway, what a miracle. What a miracle. And the Bible said as they got closer to God's people, God allows these things to happen for a while. They got closer, to people, ah, they said, Moses, you brought us out here so we can die in this desert, and we told you to leave us alone. We would stay in Egypt. And here they come, and God made the wheels fall off the chariots. How many wheels fell off of them? I mean, you're talking about a lot of things that happened at once. Then we're talking about a cloud that came down in a desert a cloud that came down so that nobody could see what was going on and everything was just in confusion. And then Moses taking a stick and holding it over the Red Sea. And then all of a sudden, whoo, here came this wind. Where'd it come from? He said it in the heavens, went a little whisper from God and the Red Sea opened up and became dry a million people, I guess, say a million people walked across it. How long would it take the city of Louisville and all the surrounding suburbs of Louisville to walk through the Ohio River? I'm not talking about it opened up here in Cincinnati. I'm talking about it opened up enough where they were, where they were all standing. It opened up to ever how far it was across there, and all of these people went across on dry land. They didn't have to go, Ew. they didn't do that. It was dry land. And all the time they were walking across there, God, who was in control of nature and all the elements of it, he kept the people that were trying to destroy them, the destroyer, he kept them in derision. And God's people walked across there. And they got on the other side. And the song says, Through the Red Sea they did go, the waters spread apart. God gave Sister Miriam a dance down in her heart. Oh, the Holy Ghost will set your feet a dancing. We ever sing that? The Holy Ghost will thrill you through and through. The Holy Ghost will set your feet a dancing. And then there's it's about five or six verses. Some night we'll get caught up and do them all. <laughs> Out of Egypt long ago, the Israelites were led by a mighty miracle. They all were kept and fed through the Red Sea. They did go; the waters spread apart. And God gave Sister Miriam a dance down in her heart. Oh, the Holy Ghost will set your feet a-dancing. And you look down at them and said, what? (laughs) Dancing. They get off the ground a little bit. Amen. Amen. You see, God can make it happen. He's in charge of nature and all of creation. Remember the book of Joshua? They were destroying their enemy, and the sun was going down, and Joshua said, Sun, stand still. Moon, be still. Time, cease. Until they finish destroying their enemies. And God said it was the only time before or since that he hearkened to the voice of man. Could God stop everything? Could he stop the normal cycles of the sun and the moon? Could he be going like this here and then go? Because Joshua said, Stop. God said, you heard him. And we wonder sometimes we have such great needs. Can we do that? Joshua did. Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain. And James said he was a man of like passions as we are. no different than us. He just had a relationship with God where he knew what God could do. And he just simply asked him to do it. Oh, praise the Lord. What kind of bird fed Elijah? Remember when he was hidden? The Bible said ravens fed him. How did a raven know where he was? Where did a raven get food to feed Elijah? This old man was sitting on a hollow in a hill somewhere, and here came birds. Here came ravens. And in their beak, they had something to eat. They don't go, ugh. It might have been Tenderloin or something. You don't know what it was. (laughs) He dropped that thing down, and I can see old Elijah going, oh. These birds kept feeding that old man. How did a bird know what to do? That's not normal for a bird to do that. Why did the bird do it? Because God made him. If God wants to feed you like that, he can. You ever heard of these prehistoric birds? These funny-looking birds back in another age? The long, ugly beaks and distorted-looking bodies and claws, whatever that is. Did you know that God could resurrect one of them while you're praying for your need to be met and could cause that thing to go under radar because they would never figure that out and get to your house and drop down a basket full of your needs. Somebody a long time ago said, well, God wouldn't counterfeit money. That money had to come from somewhere. No joke. Where do you think he got it? Wherever he wanted to get it. He could make it come off of somebody's old savings account or in somebody's little book somewhere and fall over here. He could put back over here something else. They wouldn't know what the numbers were on the bills. They wouldn't know it was gone or it had been changed. It doesn't matter. God doesn't need man's explanations to do miracles. We try so hard to make natural everything that's supernatural. God just simply... Could do that. God can make us to triumph every day in our life. Doesn't the Bible say He leads us daily in His triumph? What about the odds? There are no odds with God. There are no odds with God. There's not 9,800,000 to one. That's not even enough because God is overall. God by a simple this or that can change the course of everything. Daniel was thrown in the lion's den. It is natural for lions to attack men, I guess, and eat them. And Daniel looked like a tasty morsel, you know, one old bony-looking prophet thrown down in there, and he was going to chomp on him a little bit. But the lion couldn't touch him. The Bible said God sent his angels and shut the mouths to the lions. Could he do that for you? What's too hard for God? In all of our complaining and all of our frustrations with life and things in this world, our children, our family, our marriage, our tomorrows, our job, our work, what is it that God can't do? Who out there that has what you need, who is it that God cannot change so that your needs are met? And yet we sit around and cry. We whine and we yap. How about the fiery furnace? These three boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they threw them in the furnace. And they were in there walking around. I don't think that's normal. The furnace was so hot that the people who stoked it, some of them died because of the heat. And these three Hebrew boys were thrown in there. Must have been a pretty good sized furnace because they were walking around. They weren't getting hot in one spot and had to move over either. They got in there, they were no doubt looking around. Have you ever been in a fiery furnace? (laughs) No, a lot of people thrown in a fiery furnace instantly perished. But in this situation, they were in there talking to Jesus. He was in there with them. Fire doesn't mean anything to him because he's in charge. Distance is nothing to him. Circumstances don't mean anything to him. In fact, when they got out of that furnace, the Bible said there was not even the smell of smoke On their clothing. Why? Because the sovereign Lord declared that it wouldn't be. They weren't harmed. They weren't hurt. If he can take care of those three guys, can he take care of you? Absolutely, he can take care of you. Now, these are the things that God can do. These are the things that God is able to do. These are the things that God does. This is who he is. He is God, the almighty God, ruler of heaven and earth. He does as he pleases in the kingdom of man. Well, what about us? Do we as men, thirdly, do we have anything to say about it? Do we have any choices in the matter at all, or are we just mechanical little things down here that God makes us do whatever we do, whether we want to do it or not, and we have no say in the matter? Is man's will have anything to do with his life, or is it all just whatever God wants? God just makes us do whatever he wants us to do, and that's all there is to it. You see, there are volumes. There are volumes and volumes and volumes written, especially in the older days, about the will of man and the will of God. There were two schools of thought back in the Reformation. There was the Calvinist school of thought. Everything changed in the Reformation. Bibles were being printed. The common man was now beginning to read for himself. Luther had the revelation about the just shall live by faith and righteousness comes by faith and these things had never been taught by the Catholic Church, and man was beginning to see things he had never seen before, and he began to devour Scripture and study. There were those who believed. For example, there was a camp called Arminius. We call them today Arminians. They protested Calvin's doctrines because they said that every man in this world is capable of making a right decision as regards being saved when the gospel message is presented. Whereas the Calvinist, remember the word tulip, T-U-L-I-P? The word tulip as an acrostic, each word means something. And to the Calvinist, T meant total depravity. Depravity means bad, evil, depraved that man is so evil and so totally depraved and without God that he is incapable of doing a right thing. Now, the Arminians say, which is what most of everything else in churchism is, the Arminians say that, no, that God has created man with, even as sinful as he is, man, when confronted with God and the plan of salvation, is given the right, to make the right decision. That he can choose what time he wants to do. This I used to say when I was growing up, when I get to be old, when I can't run around and have fun anymore, then I'll get saved. As though salvation is up to whatever I want to do about it. Because most people do believe that. Well, someday I'll go to church and I'll get religion, someday I'll I'll go get all this straightened out, and someday it doesn't work like that. Now the Calvinist said he's told totally you to pray. The U simply stood for unconditional election. That you're not elected to salvation because you've done something or because you are somebody. It is totally of God. God makes the choice, not you. And L means limited atonement. This is the difficult one. That Jesus did not die to save everybody. If he did, he failed. Would you agree to that? Not everybody is saved. A lot of people die lost without Christ. If Jesus died to save everybody and everybody is not saved, then he came up short. But if he died to save his own and all of his own are saved, then it was exactly what it's supposed to be. All people can't stand that. I stands for irresistible grace because the sovereign God can do that. His grace, His favor bestowed upon anybody, pointed towards anybody, always gets results, and nobody can resist it. Irresistible grace. And then the P is where our Baptists get our once saved, always saved. Came out of the Reformation as a P and tulip. It means the preservation of saints. That God, whom He saves, He keeps. And I believe that. That whom God saves, He keeps. That's what our word Tulip is about. Now, the Arminians had just the opposite, but I'm not going into that. I just want to say and show you that man's will is clear in the Bible. Man can quench the Spirit, can he? The Bible talks about quenching the Spirit, talks about grieving the Spirit, talks about resisting the Spirit. Jesus said in John chapter 5, the Pharisees, you are unwilling to come to me. You're unwilling. You don't want to come to me. And he also said to the same one, he said, why is it you do not understand what I'm saying? And he turned around and said, it's because you can't. God's Word is of such a premium that the only people who can ever understand it and get it are those that God shows it to. It is always and forever a spiritual revelation. Something that only God can reveal. A lost man is incapable of understanding spiritual things. 2 right. Corinthians 2 The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. Why? For they are spiritually discerned. He cannot know them. Right. He cannot know them. That's what your Bible says. Because a natural man is a man who is still in his carnal, unbelieving state. He's a sinner. He can't be anything but a sinner. Man cannot change by his will and his choices. And we live by choices. I've been saying that for years. We live by choices. Man cannot change anything that God has decreed, but man cannot save himself either. You cannot one day legitimately choose to be saved because you think it's time. That would mean salvation is up to man and not up to God. But it's all of God. Now, in closing, consider this. Turn to Psalms again. Psalms 58 and 51. Here's what God says about a man, you and me, that from our birth... Man is a transgressor from the womb. Does your Bible say that? 58 and verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born speaking lies. Is that what it said? Was that true with you? So when you were born into this world, let me read it again. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they're teenagers. What does it say? Now, this is how God describes us. You see, Isaiah 48 and verse 8 is the one that says we're transgressors from the womb. And he says here in 58 verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. Look at 51, chapter 51 and verse 5. Behold, in the womb I was shapen in iniquity... And in sin did my mother conceive me. Did David write this? He did. I was shapen in iniquity. A man is born into this world. When the mother gives birth to a child, the child is what we call a natural man. There's a whole lot of what happens if the child doesn't make it and where does it go and all that stuff. That's a whole different story. I can tell you this about children. God said, if your parents reject knowledge, he said, I will also forget your children. If they don't reject knowledge, he remembers your children. And he talks about it in, in 1 Corinthians 7 that if one of the parents is saved, then your children are sanctified. Child is born into the world with a natural inclination to lie and to cheat and to steal. All of you that have raised children, you can look at your little child when they're growing up and you can tell when they're lying. You don't have to catch them or anything. Just look at them. And you can see it. They can't even hide it because they were shapen in iniquity. Unless he is born again, he stays or she stays like this your whole life. You're a sinner. The kind of sinner you are depends on your circumstances and what you choose. But a sinner is a sinner, whether he is a wicked and evil man who kills people or just some sweet saintly little grandma that goes to church every Sunday but has no regard for God. A sinner is a sinner. At no time does the wickedness give way by osmosis to, in church membership to a holy life. It doesn't work like that. You can act this way, you can talk this way, but you never become anything until God changes your nature, until he changes you on the inside. Remember I said a while ago about Romans, the carnal mind is enmity against God. The carnal mind. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. What I'm pointing out is man is a sinful creature. He cannot help it. He cannot improve his life and make it better so that God accepts it. We like to think if we quit drinking, quit smoking, quit running around, quit doing this and quit that and start trying better to go to church and stuff that maybe we'll be saved. It doesn't work like that. We're all glad that people are better than they were. Nobody likes mean people, but you can't make it like that. Turn to one more verse and we'll close. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. We go here once a week, so this is our weekly journey to Ephesians 2. Pretty soon we'll know it by heart. Verse 2, wherein in time past. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? That's the devil. That's who determines your life, who rules your choices. The devil. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we all had our manner of life in times past, and the lust of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature. What were we? Children of wrath. We were by nature the children of wrath, even as others were. Listen, there was nothing good about us. All we, like an unclean thing, come to the Lord. There is none good, not even one. If there is none good, then how can somebody that is not good, that is dead to God and his sins, how can he make right decisions? He can't. He is without God. He is without hope and he's helpless. You're in despair. It's doom city. You're lost. You're loved, but you're lost. And if you die like that, no matter how good your intentions were and your designs were tomorrow, you perish. It's not God's will that any man should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And the gospel message has been preached throughout all the world. It's being preached if it hadn't been yet. And the gospel that brings salvation has appeared to all men everywhere. And yet, it is generally rejected. Man has a hard heart. He is an evil mind. Jesus told his own disciples once, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that an evil man can't do good things. Oh, a lot of evil people give gifts and, and work at mission fields and donate a lot of money and everything. They, they do all of that. But it's not because they love the Lord. It's because they love the fact that they feel good about what they did. At least I'm doing something. And hopefully that'll get them into heaven. But as they said in Acts chapter 8, your money perish with you if you think you can buy the gift of God. It's not for sale. The only way a man can ever come to God is if God breaks his heart. God breaks your heart and makes you see your sinfulness before him. And godly sorrow brings repentance, the weeping of a lost soul before God, seeking forgiveness. And then God, who because you ask, he brings you in. For by grace, through faith are you saved, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. I'm telling you this morning as we leave that God is bigger than life. My lips shall praise thee, thus will I bless thee. I will lift up my hands into your name. Nobody else is worthy of praise. Nobody but God. I am what I am this morning by the grace of God. I was a sinner. God save me. I don't go around confessing I'm still a sinner because you're either an ain't or a saint. And just being a saint doesn't mean that you can now relax and take it easy because this is putting your hand to the plow and don't look back. That's a test. Father, in Jesus' name, help us to understand who you are, to see you in all your bigness, and all your greatness. Lead us by the hand, Lord, as nobody else can, as nobody else is capable of. Lead us by the hand into the eternal habitations. Bestow upon us that measure of grace that brings us faith and joy and peace and righteousness. I thank you this morning for your word, for your word that is incomparable for your living word that is like a sword that cuts and divides and makes us to know right and wrong. I thank you for your spirit, Lord, who works among us to convict us of our sins. I especially pray as we leave this morning that we will never forget that you, not us, you have called us to come and assemble before you to hear what you have to say so that you won't have to judge us. We ask you to bless us with all it takes to please you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.